0: for prospective new members of the Unitarian Church of Lincoln, we bring out the membership books of the congregation and we invite people to sign the book declaring themselves in sympathy with us and joining the Unitarian Church as members. What we did this morning was not actually those people joining as members. We were recognizing that they had joined as members. It's an old ritual. It's one that most Unitarian Universalist congregations follow to some degree. Years are measured in pages in these books. And each time we get them out for a new cohort to sign, I find myself paging through them. I can glance at the page and a half of names since I arrived remembering each new member class, how some of those folks have, in the, in the short time I've been here, become integral parts of the congregation. Some of you are here. And I look and I see beloved names of those who joined late in life who are no longer with us, who I did memorial services for, Some folks joined for a time and ultimately decided that this was not the place that they were called to settle and have since moved on. (laughs) Dozens of names, each with a story and a relationship. And then each time I find myself flipping back further from before when I came because there are literally thousands of names in these two books. There are so many names that we have two books because we ran out of pages sometime in the 1970s. We know that it it was probably in the 70s both because the names are all dated but also because it has the Unitarian Universalist logo on the new book which did not exist when our original membership book was made. And going through these books, you can see seasons of congregational life. Decades where one or two people joined a year, years where dozens of people came through our door. Our charter members appear not to have signed their own names. The first few pages are a list of names all in a single hand, maybe the the church secretary at the time. And there are some names in that book Whose stories I know pretty well Seymour, Sorensen, Hansen. And there are many, many names of people I do not know. Who was Marion Gillum, who joined April 25th, 1943? What about Jesse Robinson, who joined in June 1917, the last recorded new member until 1920? What do those names mean for us today? Membership is a a fundamental part of Unitarian Universalism. We are descended theologically from congregationalist forebears who rejected church hierarchies, who said instead that congregations made up of faithful people in covenant with each other could and should be self-governing independent entities. To be a member of a Unitarian church is not simply to say, oh, this is a place that I like going. It is not the children's zoo. (laughs) It is not even saying, this is a place I get a lot from and I think is important, so I should give money to it. We're not, in fact, public radio. (laughs) Being a member of a Unitarian Universalist church is to declare yourself in covenant with the community and the people in it. It is taking what we preach, that we're interconnected, and making it real. We are part of a church that governs itself and proclaims the truth as we have found it. And there's a lot of belonging to a church that's really hard to put into words. I know the the church... Where I'm a member at is a place where I can show up on a Sunday morning and feel like I'm at home. It's a place that holds stories. It's a place where I got married. It's a place that asks me to be the best version of myself that I can be, and then tells me when I'm invariably not the best version (laughs) of myself that I can be, that it's all right, that grace abounds. In theology, we talk about actions that are outward and visible signs of an inward and invisible grace. That is, in theology, the definition of a sacrament. Sacraments are relatively straightforward actions, so drinking wine, washing with water, that take on complex metaphorical meaning, communing with the church, washing away sins. In this way, we might talk about signing a membership book as a kind of Unitarian Universalist sacrament. We don't generally baptize. And when I lead communion, it's with a much different theological understanding than Christianity generally holds. But we can think of membership as an outward and visible sign of an inward and invisible commitment. Idea has some merit. These names signed into a book decades later, are outward and visible signs that people committed to this place, that they contributed to the legacy that we inherit in our time here, this very space that we are sharing this morning. Because to be a member of a church is also to be part of a legacy that is a lot bigger than just the people in this room. We talk at board meetings about fiduciary duty. Put in its most straightforward legal terminology, board members have a duty of care and a duty of loyalty to churches that they serve. First, that they will act to the standard of a prudent person in the exercise of their duties, and second, that they hold the congregation's best interests at heart. To be a fiduciary in a church context means means that we have the congregation's best interests at heart, both the congregation that exists right now, but also the congregation that will exist four generations from now. And in a sense, while the board is the legal fiduciaries of this place, Unitarian Universalism asks each member to be fiduciaries. When members vote on a budget or a mission statement at a congregational meeting, you are deciding what this church is and will be, even after all of us are names in a membership book. Churches are inherently intergenerational undertakings. We are connected profoundly to people who have gone before us, to their wisdom and their follies, which alike have created this place that we're a part of. And we are connected to those that will come after us, our wisdom and our follies our mistakes will determine what kind of Unitarian Church of Lincoln they join. This all sounds beautiful, as I wrote it and as I read it high and mighty and like a lovely sermon. But to to take off my preacher hat for a moment and and put on my nonprofit administrator hat. (laughs) This is actually what I did before I went to seminary was nonprofit budgeting and management. So that's fun. (laughs) Um, So we'll go back to that for a little bit. Churches are collective institutions. They are made up of members. They are committed to each other in covenant. And we are an institution in the world, so we get a, a bill from Allo every month to pay for our phone bill and internet. That is part of what it means to be a church as well. The church is also an employer. You, the people in this room, very literally employ six people. And like a lot of nonprofit work, yes, the folks that work for churches tend to care deeply about what they do they feel called to their work. I think I can speak for all of the staff here when I say we genuinely love this congregation. And this in addition to being this beautiful covenanted place is also a place of employment for us. It's the job where we get a paycheck and track our sick days. So for a lot of reasons. that I've said in other sermons, but I'll mention here. um, I'm not a member of this church. I'm a member of my home church in Baltimore, in part because the things that you get out of membership are things that a minister cannot ask a congregation. I cannot ask you to take care of me when I'm sick. Fundamentally, that would be a, a boundary violation. So my membership is still at Baltimore. And when I first joined First Unitarian Church of Baltimore, I thought David Olson's job was mostly to research and deliver sermons on Sunday morning. (laughs) Maybe with a few hospital visits thrown in during the week, just to mix things up. But the truth of working for any 501c3 of this size is this. There are spreadsheets of budgets. We have to figure out how to balance our rental priorities, how to structure staff compensation, whether our safety policy follows best practices developed at a national level. This is the very practical fiduciary stuff that takes up time for ministers, staff, and lay leaders. I spend at least as much time looking at Microsoft Excel as I do writing sermons. And that's not a bad thing. Because it is an inescapable reality of, of congregations that doing this work takes money. It takes practical resources. Now, this is an uncomfortable topic, always, always, and it's often much more uncomfortable in the in the context of Unitarian Universalism. Because for a lot of us talking about money in church, especially a preacher talking about giving money to a church from the pulpit, that smacks of the worst excesses of televangelist Christianity, right? (laughs) Where the argument often goes give to the church because if you do, God will reward you in this life and the next. And by the way, if your preacher um, buys a private jet, that's just so he, and it's always he, can better spread the word of God. We're not, we're not doing that today. We are going to talk about money, though. There's a saying um, in, uh, in the first epistle of John that the church is in the world, but not of the world. The idea, I suppose... Uh, is that while the church deigns to be in the world and interact with it, it's a compromise. The church is always pointing to something beyond the world and is a reflection of that other thing here on earth. That's not really how Unitarian Universalism thinks about our churches. Our church is in the world and it is of the world. And it reflects all the messiness of the world and the possibilities of it. So when we pledge to a Unitarian Universalist Church, we're doing it not because of something outside this world. We're pledging because the church is in this world and of it, and we want to do big things together. Last week, the treasurers of the church got up and announced that uh, this year we have a shortfall between the budget that we hoped for and the amount we have pledged while we have raised almost 95% of the pledges that we had last year, we are trying to do some new things this year. And so we found ourselves with about a $25,000 shortfall. Side note, I know that sounds like a lot of money. But our pledge income is over $350,000 a year. So that's actually in the neighborhood of like a 5 to 7% budget shortfall. That's um, That's not bad for churches. When you look at 20 to 40% budget shortfalls then the minister starts sweating. Our catastrophic case at this point is not being able to try the new things that we're hoping to next year. And as churches go, that's not a bad problem. We've had many members raise their pledges since last week to start to make up that amount, but we are still short. And so this is me saying that we should talk about money. And we should talk about it from the pulpit. And we should say that if you want this church to do big things, please support it. We have until November 8th um, for you to increase your pledge for next year before the board meets to decide what the budget will be. That's a plant. I I thought I had a thing stuck in my manuscript. (laughs) I'm talking about this from the pulpit because I think it's important that we speak frankly about all the, the practical parts of being a church. This is reality. We live in a capitalist world, and as long as the church gets an electrical bill and our staff needs health insurance, we will need to raise money for this place. So we should talk about it. And we want to be transparent in this. I want to be transparent in this. And my salary is in the annual budget document that you're going to vote on. And while I am not a member of this church, Stacy and I pledge here. At the end of each pledge season, I ask our pledge team what the median pledge was. And that's our pledge for the year. So I can say honestly that exactly half of the membership of this church pledges more than me, and exactly half pledges less. (laughs) And so if you want your minister to raise his pledge, (laughs) you can raise yours. (laughs) It's also really important, really important to, to say that we're talking about money today, the church asks members to pledge, but we don't have a minimum pledge. I'm happy with my pledge, the median scheme, it makes me feel very clever. Um, (laughs) But it it wasn't that long ago that I sat in the office, uh, the minister's office in Baltimore, feeling guilty because I couldn't afford to pledge. And, uh, and David Olson sat me down, and looked at me and said, Look, you're in graduate school, and you and I both know that your health means you can either take classes or work, but not both right now. So I know that you're living off of student loans. And frankly, if I find out that you're pledging more than about $5 a year, I'm gonna be angry with you <laughs> because that's not living within your means and you're not being responsible to yourself or the church if you do that. That's, an impre- that's a really important lesson for all of us, that we give in seasons of our life, that in the midst of a national depression or our own fallow moments, it is okay to step back and say, this is not what I can do right now. And to have faith that there will be people in this church that will say, we can increase our pledges this year because we are in a season of our life where that's possible. So I want to say, I want to be really, really clear about that. That we never ask folks to put themselves in irresponsible financial situations because of giving to this place. So the practical business of running a church seems like odd fodder for a sermon. But here's, I, I think, the miracle of it all are churches in and of the world. And at the same time, the church can transcend the world. The list of names in the membership book is filled with people who probably puzzled over budgets, tried to figure out what their fiduciary duty was, probably argued over how to apply Robert's rules of order at a congregational meeting. And that list of names is filled with people, the same people who saw this as a home for their souls, a place that proclaims the truth in the world, a a sanctuary where music and word speak together every week. I'm fond of saying in both board meetings and sermons, well, there's really um, two things going on here and we should take them separately. This time, it's actually the reverse. Our practical issues, the budget, the pledge campaign, they are inextricable from who we are as a covenantal community. The budget isn't just about keeping the lights on. This year, the budget expanded because in conversations as a community, we all said, music is really important here. What would it look like to expand our music program and try new things. What does it look like to be a voice outside in the community? What does it look like for our rental procedures to reflect our deepest commitments in Unitarian Universalism? Those questions all work their way into the budget. On Thursday night, I had the privilege of speaking at a vigil at the state capitol. Remembering the victims of hatred at the tree of life congregation in Pittsburgh. And This is part of what I said. The truth is that this didn't happen by accident. It's not an accident that Rose Mallinger's life ended. It wasn't an act of God that ended Maurice Stollard's life. This is no accident, and because my faith tells me that we are interconnected, it it tells me that we all bear some responsibility for allowing this to happen, and that we have a responsibility to try and prevent it going forward. Human lives are not replaceable, and these lives are not accidentally gone. And if this is to end, if hatred and violence are, to be diminished, then that is also not going to be by accident. It will be through hard work of people of goodwill saying that this must end. Folks don't sign a membership book at a Unitarian Universalist Church by accident either. We don't have a thriving church in Lincoln by accident. It's the result of hard work of people of goodwill saying this place is important. What we say here matters. Each each of those names, each of those thousands of names in those two books worked hard to build the legacy of this place. And if this church grows and thrives in the coming years, then that also will not be an accident. It will be because the folks in this room made it so.